Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight we enter Room 106, the world of pain in which all new planning information is found, and extract the key things you need to know. So, coming up, the key news from the past fortnight and what it means for you. Rebellions over the government's levelling up and regeneration bill. How will they change the legislation? An inspector has cited an allocation in a local plan that was never adopted as justification for allowing an appeal. Could this mark the beginning of a trend? And in our deep dive section, we'll be exploring what we learned from our recently published survey on the 50 biggest planning authorities. By the end of the show, you should know enough to greet your boss at the Christmas party with confidence. So, time to grit our teeth and wrap our heads in cold towels. Ready to venture in? Okay. Well, here we are again in room 106. So, John, what news stories have stood out in the past fortnight? Well, my first item is the latest on the levelling up and regeneration bill, which contains a series of significant changes to the planning system. Last week, the government pulled a vote on an amendment to the bill that was put forward by the former Environment Secretary, Theresa Villiers, that would make centrally set house building targets, in the words of the amendment, advisory and not mandatory. So our readers will know that local authorities are required to base their local plan housing targets on a local housing need figure that's calculated using a government formula known as the standard method. And that's also used as the basis for assessing their five-year housing land supply targets. So Villiers' amendments would require a revision to the national planning policy framework within six months to provide that housing targets are advisory, not mandatory, and that the five-year housing land supply rule will no longer apply. A further amendment she tabled would ensure that the MPPF must not contain a presumption in favour of sustainable development, where there are no relevant development plan policies or such policies are out of date. Last week, Michael Gove, the Housing Secretary, was forced to postpone a a scheduled debate on the bill and a vote on the um, amendments because of the level of support for this particular amendment. So the latest is that 56 MPs from all wings of the Tory party have now signed these amendments. And how has the government responded so far? Well, yesterday it was reported that Gove was willing to change the bill to allow greater flexibility on house building targets and to prioritise brownfield land development. A report in the Daily Telegraph said that Downing Street officials have already held a series of discussions with planning rebels in an attempt to reach a compromise. The government is making efforts to find common ground, a source told the newspaper, with areas of potential compromising, including the government agreeing to greater flexibility on targets and finding legal routes to make sure developers prioritise building on brownfield sites. Is there any information out there on what sort of changes they might make to to achieve those? The report doesn't go into much detail about this, but they do chime with recent comments by both Gove and the Prime Minister. Uh, So Michael Gove appeared in front of the Leveling Up Housing Community Select Committee last week, where he said he's considering changes to the standard method of assessing housing need, which is what the rebels are, are trying to do as well. He told MPs that the government is proposing an update to national planning policy that would acknowledge planning authorities' previous over-provision of homes when calculating their local housing need figures. And he also said that a 
greater proportion of homes need to be built on urban brownfield sites and there should be a local judgment made as part of the plan making process about the likely level of new housing required. And that's obviously something Michael Gover said previously about um, wanting to change the way housing need is, is calculated. And Rishi Sunak, just after he arrived in number 10, he told MPs in Parliament that the government is adopting a brownfield first strategy and made a commitment to protecting the greenbelt. So in terms of movement on local housing need numbers, there is certainly common ground between Gove and the rebels, and both he and Sunak seem keen to focus new development on brownfield sites. Interesting. Now, this isn't the only amendment that's causing the government difficulties. No, that's right. So alongside the rebellion on housing targets, another former Secretary of State is making life difficult for the Prime Minister. Simon Clark, who was briefly housing and levelling up secretary under Liz Truss, has also tabled an amendment to the bill. His clause basically seeks to change the um, MPPF to make it easier for councils to uh, grant applications for onshore wind developments. So back in 2015, the government changed the planning laws to make it much more difficult for councils to approve onshore wind schemes. And according to reports, no sizeable onshore wind schemes have been granted permission since then. So what the government did was that they said that there must be public consultation before wind turbine development can even be considered. And they changed the MPPF to say that applications for turbines couldn't be considered acceptable unless they're in an area identified in a development plan suitable for wind energy development. And the affected local community has demonstrated its backing. And commentators have said that Basically, that means that only one person's objection can block a wind farm development, which has made it almost impossible to get them through. So Clark's amendment make it easier for councils to grant permission. He said on Twitter that his amendment would allow onshore wind where and only where there is community consent. So it wouldn't be a there would still be some restrictions. It would involve updates to the MPPF and the Town and Country Planning Act. And in response to that, yesterday it was reported the Prime Minister is considering reviewing the um, restrictions on onshore wind amid this growing rebellion. Apparently, two former prime ministers, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, have backed the amendments and more than 30 Tory MPs now support it. Critically, Labour says it would support the amendment to ease the restrictions, in contrast to the housing target amendment, which Labour wouldn't support. So that means it, you know, it could well pass with the support of rebel Tory MPs. Okay. Uh, Yeah, well, very interesting to see how that all pans out. So tell us about your second item. Um, A second item is an appeal decision where a planning inspector has allowed uh, 47 homes on a parts greenbelt site in Essex after attaching weight to the site's allocation in a draft of the council's local plan that was withdrawn. The decision has been highlighted by planning lawyers as a significant one with potentially wider implications for housing on Greenbelt sites where a local plan has been withdrawn. So the inspector, Owen Woodwards, cited Basildon Council's draft allocation of the site. Okay, so what was the inspector's reasoning? The inspector cited uh, Basildon Council's allocation of the site in its now withdrawn local plan as a factor in his decision permitting the development alongside the council's lack of a housing land supply and the lack of any prospect of it delivering a local plan in the near future. Just to remind our readers, Basildon Council withdrew its local plan from examination in March, leaving it with a local plan dated from 1998. 
The inspector found a very substantial shortfall in the council's FIB and housing land supply and its record of housing delivery. He gave very substantial weight to the delivery of market homes. And he also noted that the site was allocated for development in the plan that was withdrawn. He said the plan carried no weight, but its evidence base is still a material consideration. He added that the important consideration is that the site was found to be suitable for development and to be removed from the greenbelt. He also said that a new local plan was a minimum of five years away and it was therefore necessary to consider proposals that come forward in the greenbelt ahead of adoption of the new local plan. And why do practitioners think this is significant? Well, some experts believe that the decision indicates that inspectors are placing greater weight on sites allocated for development in draft plans that are withdrawn or put on hold. So we know that at least 19 authorities have paused or delayed the production of local plans in the last year. Many of these cover greenbelt areas. Um, we've covered that a lot, and it's been a big issue in the planning and development sector. Zach Simons, who's a planning barrister at Landmark Chambers, who acted for the appellant in this case, said that decision means that where plans are withdrawn, we can expect many more appeals like this one over the next 18 months or so on sites in the Greenbelt that had been proposed for allocation. A number of other commentators we spoke to said this could set a precedent where sites have been previously allocated in plans that are then withdrawn or paused. And they also said that landowners promoting such sites had asked had been asking a lot of questions about the decision and whether it might mean inspectors um, taking a, a more sympathetic stance where plans have been withdrawn or paused. So is it overly crude to see it as a green light for appeals on greenbelt sites with a history as draft allocations? Yes, that's right. Other commentators said the case relied on the specific factors involved beyond the fact it was allocated in a withdrawn plan. And a key factor was its brownfield location. So it can't be read as a green light for greenbelt appeals on sites with a history as draft allocations. The inspector said the main issue at stake was whether the site benefited from an exemption in the MPPF. So because the site in question is on previously developed land, then it's subject to an exemption in the MPPF, which means that the usual tests for greenbelt development don't apply. It's not classed as inappropriate development. And therefore, the very special circumstances test, which is a high bar to meet, was not applied. And the vast majority of greenbelt sites aren't on brownfield land, so they wouldn't benefit from that. And then third item, I think you're casting your mind back, which already seems a while ago, but to the autumn statement. There wasn't much said about planning in the autumn statement. There was no big announcements on on planning reforms. But what the government did say was that its investment zone programme will be dramatically changed from the one announced by the former Foreign Minister Liz Truss. Okay. And uh, how is it going to be changed? So when it was announced in the mini budget in September, uh, it was said that the investment zones would benefit from relaxed planning rules, environmental deregulation and tax incentives. And the aim was to boost housing delivery and to drive growth. So what the new Chancellor Jeremy Hunt said was that the the programme will now be refocused on universities and importantly, it will maintain high environmental standards. So there was no mention of changes to planning rules or increasing housing delivery. It said that the Housing and Development Department will work closely with mayors, devolved administrations, local authorities to consider how best to identify and support these clusters and drive growth. 
And what about the um, all those bids that were put together by councils in, in the last few months? What's going to happen to them? Well, unfortunately, those bids will not go forward, the government has said. Earlier this week, the Housing Secretary, Michael Gove, revealed that about 90 councils had submitted a total of 626 bids to host one of the investment zones during the um, when the expression of interest was launched after the mini-budget in September. But it wasn't completely wasted work. Michael Gove, in a letter to Clive Betts, the chair of the um, Leveling Up Committee, so the process had provided the government with a wealth of information to inform continued policy development, which will aid in strengthening relationships with places and increasing our understanding of local growth ambitions. Well, I wonder how much comfort that will be to uh, authorities that diverted resources onto those bids. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of frustration about the, um, the changes of course in policy that's been going on in the last few months. Okay, well, uh, many thanks, John. Of course, more details of all of these stories can be found on Planning Resource. .co.uk and uh, see you later to talk about your quirky story of the week. Bye for now. Okay, so now I need to make my way across to the corner of room 106 where the original planning magazine research accumulates and the latest documents to be piling up here are our top 50 survey of the biggest planning authorities in England, which has been worked on by two of my colleagues, uh, one of which is our special correspondent, Joey Gardner, who I can see uh, in one corner of the room. Hi, Joey. Good afternoon. Someone else who's been working on this is our reporter, Samantha Eckford. Hi. Hi, Richard. So this is the second year we've done this. It's a slightly more ambitious survey than we did last year. Last year, we looked at the 30 biggest planning authorities. And I should say that our method of ranking them in terms of selecting a top 50 this year is those who receive the most applications. But we've looked at all sorts of elements of their workload, including how much permitted development, prior approval, applications they get, how many appeals they, they work on during a year. And we also look on lots of different aspects of their resourcing from the level of professional planning staff they have to the amount of application fees they receive, their civil income, et cetera, et cetera. And there's also information in the, uh, in the survey about who heads up the planning team at those councils and their political makeup as well of the, of the councils. I mean, first of all, it might be interesting to talk, first of all, talk about what we learned about resources, because this was um, a lot of the research was um, a matter of us doing our own analysis of government data. But the data we have about numbers of professional planning staff at each of the biggest 50 authorities is our own exclusive research that we've gathered from the authorities. Sam, this is something that you looked at. How do we define professional planning staff? Yeah, so we defined professional planning staff as someone who was working in a role that requires a professional planning qualification. So this could be an RTPI chartered town planner or someone who's RICS qualified or someone who has the level of planning knowledge, skills and experience that would normally be associated with someone in that role. So if there's somebody doing a job who was an RTPI member and qualified as a planner many years ago, but has let their membership lapse. From the point of view of this count, they would still um, be counted as a member of professional planning staff. Yeah, exactly that. They'd still qualify. 
So for starters, which of the biggest 50 authorities have the most professional planning staff? So Cornwall was the authority that reported the most planning staff um, by quite a margin. And then they were followed by Buckinghamshire, Barnet, Leeds and Wandsworth completed the top five. Okay. And and how many do um, Cornwall have? And how do the numbers drop off as you, as you go down the list? So Cornwall reported 200 professional planning staff, um, followed by Buckinghamshire with 156. This was against a media number across the top 50 authorities of 42. So significantly above the average. It's really interesting, isn't it? It shows that the biggest councils have got just as big a cohort of professional planners as the biggest planning consultancies. Yeah. Okay. What about the top five for increases or decreases in professional planning staff? So Hillingdon was the authority that reported the largest increase in planning staff. So they reported a 27% increase, followed by Bournemouth, Christchurch and Paul, Bradford, Westminster and Stockport. And when you spoke to the authorities, what, what, what did you learn about the reasons for some of the big rises? So Hillingdon, who reported the largest rise, said that the authority had been insourcing part of its development management service and then had recently created a new service structure, which had involved the recruitment of approximately 10 new planning staff over the last year, and that this had increased the size of its planning policy and planning obligations function. What about other places that had seen big increases? What reasons did they give? So Bradford, which reported the third largest increase, said that the main reason for this was the introduction of a new planning technician role. So this is for people with environmental related degrees, but who don't necessarily have any experience of planning. They said they introduced this just before 2018, and apparently many of these staff have subsequently taken up full planning officer roles. Okay, well, that's um, interesting to hear about what we learned about the resourcing of some of the biggest authorities. Joey, I think you've been looking more at the workload of some of these uh, big authorities. Just as for starters, I mean, who are the top five in terms of um, numbers of applications received? So the top five authorities, we've got a a selection of different types of authorities combining some of the recent big unitary or recently created unitary authorities with some of the big city councils, as you might expect. But top of the list comes Cornwall, then number two, Buckinghamshire, then Wiltshire, and then Birmingham and Leeds. And uh, what about those who've seen big increases in the the past couple of years compared to the um, two years before that? That's quite a different list. Uh, amongst the top five biggest increases, the only the only one that's actually one of the top five biggest authorities is is Leeds. The other top five biggest increases were seen in Havering, in Bradford, in East Suffolk, and in Elmbridge. Okay. And what do we know about the reasons behind some of these increases? Well, I think the reasons that applications have been rising, and and of course, applications rose overall by a median 2.9% across the whole of the top 50, was really a market-based reason overall, as as most of the respondents to the surveys saw. I mean, we, we, we had the bounce back from the COVID or the immediate kind of lockdown period in COVID, which saw immediately a big rise in householder applications with people kind of trapped in in houses and looking to extend their properties. And then latterly, as the housing market picked up quite sharply, quite a rise then in developer applications as well as the housing market bounced back. So in a lot of these places, these were councils and council areas that benefited 
both from this rise in householder applications and often from this rise in the in the housing market overall as well. Okay, and what what about specific individual councils? Um, among the people you s- spoke to, um, were any of them uh, councils that had seen big rises and and explained sort of what was behind them in their own areas? Well, I think some of the more interesting ones were actually if you looked in the places that were the exceptions to that. I mean, you had areas like Redbridge, Westminster, Dorset, Camden, Manchester, all of these authorities that actually, despite this rising market overall, they actually saw the number of applications received fall and in some cases fall quite sharply. And and I think the reasons in those in those cases were often Westminster, for example, who I spoke to, they said they felt being a central London location, they were an area that the post-pandemic boom passed by to a certain extent because London certainly felt the effects of the pandemic being in the middle of the city much longer than other places. And it also saw a lot greater use of um, new permitted development rights as well, they felt, at Westminster, which limited the use of um, normal full planning permissions. And of course, given the type of housing stock in that area, a lower proportion of householder applications as you don't have kind of normal suburban housing, you just have kind of mid-rise and high-rise housing in Westminster, which doesn't kind of lend itself to householder type applications. So you have a lot of exceptions which explain individual circumstances. I should make plain that all the time here we're talking about the workload for councils in the two years to March 2022 compared to the previous two-year period. You mentioned permitted developments. Who are the local authorities that get the most prior approval applications? Are they the same as the ones who get the most applications? No, interestingly, they're they're not, in fact, of the top five authorities for prior approval applications, which are the permitted development applications, only one of them is in the top five authorities overall, and that's Birmingham. Birmingham is the number one authority for prior approval applications. And then number two is Redbridge, then you have Barnet, then Ealing, and then Brent. So a number of London boroughs there following on from Birmingham as the number one prior approval authority. Okay. And where are the numbers of uh, prior approval applications rising most, I suppose I should ask? Well, interestingly, as one would normally associate prior approval and permitted development rights, given, I guess, splurge of office to residential applications that we saw during the 2010s, it's a, a phenomenon one normally associates with cities and places like Birmingham and London. The biggest increases in the period that we tracked here A lot of those biggest increases have been in rural authorities. So Dorset is number one on the list for biggest increase, then South Downs National Park. Then we have following that Leeds and Manchester, so two big cities there as well, and then Northumberland Unitary. Any idea why these councils say they're seeing such a big rise in these numbers? Well, I spoke to Dorset and certainly Dorset's view and backed up with the sense that the head of planning who I spoke to and the sense that he was getting from members where permitted development, he said, had become quite a controversial topic was that there had just been a very large rise in um, use of agricultural to residential permitted development. And there there had been a obviously a change in that permitted development right, which encouraged the uptake. Overall, 
the use of permitted development increased, it was up on average 9%, which is a large rise given that the usage of um, prior approvals has had been declining over the last few years. And that was seen in general as down to the raft of, of new permitted development rights, most of which came through in the immediate post-pandemic period. But the specific increase in rural areas uh, was due to a popularity of um, agricultural to residential permitted development rights. Okay, very interesting. Thank you very much, Joey. You've covered a lot of other stuff as well, and um, people will be able to find that in our report, which is on uh, planningresource.co.uk now, and also has got details of the councils that saw the most planning appeals decided in that period, um, those that had the most planning application fees, those that got the most SIL income. There's lots more information in there. So um, if people are interested, I'd encourage them to have a look. But thank you very much to you, Joey, and to you, Sam, as well. And look forward to seeing you back in Room 106 soon. Thank you. Thanks very much, Richard. Right, now to find John again, so he can select his eyebrow-raising story of the week. Ah, here he is. Hi, Richard. My eyebrow-raising story of the week is a costs decision in relation to a huge appeal that was allowed last month. So that appeal was regarding plans for a 1,000 homes and a new golf course to host the Ryder Cup on Greenbelt land in Bolton. So this story is the costs decision in relation to that appeal, which was announced separately to the appeal decision. It's our second most read story of the past fortnight. So there's been a huge amount of interest. So the inspector awarded full costs against the council, which means it has to pay the developers full costs for launching the appeal. He found that the council decision was irrational and injudicious to the extent that no reasonable authority would have made it. And our readers tend to like it when inspectors use tough language with councils and Here's a classic example. The council was found to have behaved unreasonably and therefore has to pay the developer's costs. He distinguished between the unreasonable behaviour of the planning committee in refusing planning permission and the exemplary conduct of officers at both the application and appeal stages, saying that officers were beyond reproach. I imagine um, it's uh, not, not an easy topic for discussion between the, uh, between the officers and the councillors at that council. Very interesting. Thanks very much, John. I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Fantastic. That's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, Subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Aidan Lyons and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening. <laughs>